Lots of stuff to talk about today regarding education and teachers. It's This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston and Jane Cahoon. Layla Tassi is taking a day off. She'll be back for the Friday podcast. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. <laughs> Happy Thursday. Almost Friday. Almost Friday. Okay, let's begin. What has been the history of bills that cram multiple topics into a single piece of legislation, seemingly in violation of the Ohio Constitution's one subject rule? A topic worth discussing as Ohio Senate Republicans have crammed 28 new policies into their budget proposal. Jane Cahoon, we asked Andrew Tobias to take a deep dive on this, and it was illuminating. There's hope for those who want single subject. <laughs> yeah, we hope. And, you know, honestly, I'm sure it's way more than 28. You know, we're going to find out more and more. And even in this conference committee, which maybe you might have some hope that they will get rid of some of these things. I bet you they add stuff. So that's just my personal little, little <laughs> Wow, what a pessimist. <laughs> I'm going to be optimistic and think it's going to drop down. All right, we'll see. Anyway, Andrew Tobias looked into this, did, did a little research, talked to a couple of, of legal experts, and it's, it's kind of a mixed bag, you know, although courts have often given leeway to lawmakers when it comes to things like the budget. So... The single subject rule is supposed to prevent them from sticking all sorts of these thing, unrelated things into a bill. And this is a maneuver they often use to just get their priorities passed without any public scrutiny or debate and as a way to get their colleagues to, to vote for something that they might not otherwise vote for, like if it was in a standalone uh, piece of legislation. But uh, anyway, these legal experts told Andrew the threshold is pretty high for proving violations of this rule, even if, you know, to people like us, it seems blatantly obvious that, you know, this isn't right. But um, but the, it has been successfully um, pursued in court to, to uh, challenge lawmakers on, on violating this rule. So, um, you know, sometimes it's just, I, I think one of them said it's, it's not whether something contains multiple subjects, but whether there's a disunity of topics. And that's something the court <laughs> looks at. <laughs> you love that word, disunity. Yeah. We've got We've got SNAP with uh, $7,000 cars. We've got abortion restrictions. I mean, you want to talk I mean, about yeah, disunity. Yeah. You I, got public records things. You got, you know, it's anyway. I like what Matt Dolan said about it. Laura this is Laura Johnston. Was that everything's related to the budget because you all yeah, spend money. <laughs> yeah, it all like impacts <laughs> the, the spreadsheet, I think is what right. he said. Right. So, like, That's a stretch. Yeah, yeah. Stretch it however you want. But anyway, so just a few examples. You want a few examples of what Andrew yes. found? So yes. in 2004, the Ohio Supreme Court struck down a provision in a budget bill that created a new private school voucher program saying that that seemed like a tactical movement to avoid controversy, although they eventually approved that program, you know, in a separate bill as as they should um, in and as they should deal with it separately, I mean. And then in uh, just uh, last year, a federal judge struck down a provision in the 2019 state budget that made it easier for residents in this affluent village called Hills and Dales to break away from their current school district and, and, and switch to a nearby one. And uh, the state didn't really follow through on appealing that. So that was a case where, 
you know, if uh, a judge did strike it down. And then this is a good one. Multiple Ohio cities sued in 2017 after lawmakers amended a bill. It was a bill like imposing licensing requirements on pet stores, and they added language to block Cleveland and other cities from setting a $15 minimum wage and and restricting how cities can regulate cell towers and telecommunications equipment. So that one in the lower courts, you know, they struck that down as unconstitutional, but then an appeals court overturned it. And, um, you know, that, that uh, minimum wage thing is, is, the ban is, is still on the books. Um, and then abortion restrictions, which we have some, you know, in the current budget in 2013, the ACLU challenged other abortion restrictions that were slipped into the state budget and they won in the lower court as well as in an appeals court. But at that time, the Ohio Supreme court, they, they let the abortion uh, restrictions remain. Uh, And this might give you an idea of sort of where the Supreme court Uh, majority stands on this one. Justice Judith French, a Republican, um, she was on the court at the time, she wrote that the state law is meant to guide lawmakers, not give courts a means to strike down state law. So she said at the time of the rules adoption, the framers of the Ohio Constitution understood the one subject rule as a matter of legislative procedure enforced by the General Assembly not by I, the judiciary. I want to. I so, want to start treating all the laws like this, like bank robbery. It's, yeah. it's it's against the law, but really, it's a guideline. So you know, embezzlement. You know, you shouldn't do it, but we're we're not gonna we're not gonna leave you convicted of it because you know it's kind of up to the bank. It's yeah. just silly. And you know, let's point out she got thrown off the court. She was defeated in her run for reelection. Maybe it's because of silly silly statements like that. Here's the thing. The Republicans still have a majority though on that court. I know. But but here's the thing. Maureen O'Connor has shown herself to be pretty much guided by common sense. And while the court may want to defer in in questionable situations to the legislature this is so egregious it's so <laughs> ridiculous I, I i think she's gonna look at him and say please give us something to work with here how can we possibly sign off on this 28 completely disunified pieces of legislation that they shoved into the budget what's nice jane is is that some of the times they've rejected it they've actually said you just did this to bypass the legislative process, which you could argue is the case with every one of these. So I'm counting on the Supreme Court to to get behind it. Are, are we going to do the story that I asked about um, in the next few days about where we find out who's going to be lining up to file these court challenges? <laughs> if this stuff well, will... you might be getting a little ahead of things. You know, they could act on this budget as soon as Friday, uh, Bob, you know. Bob Cup said that on on uh, Wednesday. So well, I, it'll be Friday at five thirty, Jane. Oh, when you're ready to yeah, have. I'll your be long weekend. gone. <laughs> 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 okay. Um, good stuff. Uh, check out Andrew's story on Cleveland.com. It's pretty exhaustive, and it gives you an idea of where we're headed with the greed of this legislature. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What's the new school report card system proposed for Ohio, and why do Ohio legislators want to make standardized college testing optional? Laura Johnston, I've thought for years that we change our report card system every two or three years intentionally so that you can't measure against the past. If you keep changing the ruler, you can't really know how much things have grown. This is a pretty dramatic change that's being talked about today. 
Yeah, they want to replace the A to F system for school report cards for schools and district and replace it with a new star performance rating system. The idea is that they would get one star to five stars for six areas. Those are the ones that are already being used to rate a school, such as overall achievement on tests, graduation rates, and early literacy. And the idea is that you see an F, you say a school is failing, and those schools get a bad reputation. And a lot of times the schools with the the most failing grades are the schools that don't have a lot of money. There's a correlation between school districts with money and the better grades they do. So you can't really, I mean, I don't know. I feel like you're going to still end up averaging these number of stars and be like, they're getting a 4.1 overall and they'll still be able to compare. But I guess A to F has a really bad um connotation with it. So this bill actually started out just about ACTs and SETs. And when it came out of the Senate to di- on Wednesday with a 31 to one vote, it had this whole report card part added to it. The, the idea that they changed the system, though, does make it hard to look back 10 years ago or 15 years ago because we're starting from scratch again. So you have to say, well, there are a three-star system this year. Right. Two years ago, they were an F or a D or, right. or you're whatever. Gonna, what are you going to do, like zero to one to five and give A's five? I guess you could probably do the math. I mean, they are looking at the same ideas, the same credentials for the schools, um, but they say this is going to be more fair somehow. Part of I mean, the problem is see. that they continue to refuse to recognize the challenges you have in urban school districts there's a good bit of science that shows educating children in poverty is much more challenging than ed- educating children who are not. There's there's all sorts of factors that play into it, the trauma that they witness and nutrition and health and a variety of factors that hamper their ability to learn. And, and when academics have inserted that into ratings as a test, they show that districts like Cleveland are not at all failing, that they're much more middle of the pack, doing much better than anybody would think. But because Cleveland and other urban districts deal with kids in poverty, they always come out on the low end. So whether it's stars or A's and F's, they're going to continue to look bad on this rating system because it's not really an accurate measurement of what they're doing. Yeah, I I don't disagree with that. And I just want to add in about this ACT-SAT thing, the base of the bill that still exists. The idea is that they were making all high school juniors in Ohio and take an ACT or an SAT. And they're saying that's not necessary. It's costing the state $2 million a year to administer all of these tests. And some kids apparently just go in, fill out their name and like turn in the test because they don't want to take it. So they want to make that optional. It actually has the support of both the Ohio School Boards Association and the teachers union saying we could still get them paid for. These kids could take the test for free, but this is a little bit more flexible. So, um, but didn't didn't a lot of the colleges just not use that those well, tests last year because of the pandemic? And and that's another it, reason for not requiring kids to take it if they're applying to a school that doesn't require it. And you, it's not just the pandemic, although I think that pushed it some more. There's a lot of schools that say this doesn't really show anything. Again, with the correlation, the number one correlation for those high test scores is is the family money that you have. And so they're saying we don't we don't want them. Now, once again, poverty, wealth, all figures into the educational system. Right. You're listening to this week in the CLE 
What are the new rules for teachers who want to carry guns in their schools? Jane Cahoon, I hope it doesn't have anything to do with the number of stars they get in the new report card. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Well, a majority of the Supreme Court uh, ruled on Wednesday that Ohio teachers and other school personnel are not allowed to carry firearms on school grounds unless they have the adequate peace officer training or experience. And this is the result of a case filed by some parents in a district uh, called Madison Local in in Butler County in in Southwest Ohio. After there was a shooting by a student at the school in 2016 that, that wounded four people, the school district came up with a policy allowing school employees to voluntarily carry concealed firearms as long as they had a concealed carry permit and, the, and that they underwent active shooter training. But the parents were concerned about this and they went to court. They cited a state law that that really has far higher training requirements to carry a gun in schools. The law says that no school shall employ a person as a special police officer, security guard, or other position in which such person goes armed while on duty, um, unless that person has completed either peace officer training or served at least 20 years as an active duty officer. So uh, the, the, the school district fought this, and they got some help from Attorney General Dave Yost, who filed a legal brief arguing that this requirement should only apply to school employees who serve in safety or security positions, you know, not to, not to teachers. Uh, the parents asserted that it, in fact, should apply to every school employee who's armed. And so the court ended up siding with the parents, although it was a split decision, four to three, uh, with Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor writing the opinion. And I know we're not supposed to suggest that politics are involved in decisions, but I'd just like to note that O'Connor is a Republican and she was joined by the three Democratic justices in this opinion, Michael Donnelly, Melody Stewart, and Jennifer Bruner. And then the three dissenters were all Republicans, Sharon Kennedy, Pat DeWine, and and Pat Fisher. So O'Connor's opinion said that the legislature, you know, when they wrote this law, they could have stated that the training requirement only applies to security staff, but they didn't. So, you know, her take on this was that, you know, it it does, uh, it applies to everybody. But the dissenting justices said they thought it was clear that it only applied to security staff. And, and Justice Kennedy kind of flipped O'Connor's argument on her and said, if the legislature intended to require all school employees to get this peace officer training before carrying a firearm, it would have written the state law that way. So you had a little like tit for tat going on in the um, opinion and then the dissent. But and then aside from this, there there was an attempt by the legislature to change this law. The 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 Republican Ohio Senate passed a bill last fall allow that would allow school personnel to carry firearms without this training. Uh, but it didn't pass the the house before last year's session ended, and uh, they. I think <laughs> there's a similar. <laughs> they're in reconciliation of the budget right now, Jane. They could stick it in there and make and, it happen. Yeah, anyway. why not? Well, pile it on, pile it on. So, and they, yeah, they do. They've got a similar bill this session, but it hasn't gone anywhere yet. So, yeah, they could just take that bill that they introduced this session and stick it right in there. Why not?
Isn't it a common sense kind of thing that if you're going to have people in schools carrying guns, that they should have the, the requisite amount of training? I mean, doesn't that seem to make some sense? What's wrong with that? I mean, I mean what's what I said that? earlier, Maureen O'Connor shows uncommon good sense all the time. And it seems like she showed it here. I mean, these are children. And you would hope that people carrying guns in the presence of many children would be fully trained to make sure they're not in danger. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What does a survey of craft brewers in Ohio have to say that's both good news and bad news? Is this well, a case where the pandemic struck a blow, but things are looking up? Laura Johnston, I, I think you're our resident beer drinker today. So go uh, at today, it. I like barely I do not drink beer, <laughs> but I appreciate <laughs> craft breweries. And this was a, a tough year, 2020, for for them because the breweries were closed for a big chunk of last year or were severely restricted. I mean, these are gathering places. There were no festivals either to show off their their brews and breweries were remember when they were trying to can their beer and we had a candemic because of the supply chain issues. So anyway, there's this survey that shows that the craft brewing industry was responsible for $880.7 million in total economic output in 2020. That's down from $967.1 million in 2018. And the, vo the volume actually decreased about 11% as well. There is optimism. 47 new craft breweries were opened last year in Ohio. That means at we're at 357 of them in the state. They directly employ 6,247 people. That's up from 6,085 in 2018. And right now, nationally, the craft beer market share is about 12%. So I, I don't think craft breweries are going to be going anywhere. Yeah, well, as we do these uh, time studies where we're looking at trends, I think we're going to get to the point where we have to just leave out 2020. Unless right. it's a measurement of the pandemic, everything changed last year. 2019 needs to be our benchmark for a couple of years until we get some semblance of normal. Unless we're trying to show just how devastating the pandemic was, then it's 2020 all the way. But right. it sounds like there's a lot of a lot of reason for optimism that our craft brewery revival will remain in full speed yeah. now that we're heading out of the pandemic. About, so. about 70% of the breweries in this survey said they plan to increase production over the next two years and a half of them plan a facility expansion. I mean, those are, that's a huge number. Maybe that's the result of the pandemic. A whole lot more people are drinking heavily. <laughs> well, that, and I think people really, they want to support local businesses and they want somewhere to go now that they can. Now that they can. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is Ohio Senator Rob Portman's role in the continuing tussle between congressional Democrats and Republicans over a big federal infrastructure spending bill? Jane Cahoon, it seems like Rob Portman is often in the mix of these kinds of discussions. Is he trying to help it along in a good way? Yeah, he's playing a really prominent role here. He, as we know, he's a Republican, and he and Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema from Arizona are leading these negotiations on on a possible compromise deal here. And Portman told reporters on on Wednesday that he hopes a deal might come as soon as the end of this week. Yay, another thing that could happen on Friday, right? <laughs> but uh, anyway, he he said uh, 11 Republican senators and 10 Democrats have reached like a framework agreement that, that focuses on what he calls core infrastructure instead of like a lot of these 
you know, what he would call a str- extraneous uh, stuff that the Democrats want to put in there. But uh, anyway, and uh, I guess th- they're talking about something in the range of like one trillion dollars, that which is a lot less than the two trillion that President Joe Biden proposed, and and it's also way less than you know other Democrats would like to see something like six trillion uh, with with all sorts of things. But as I said, he he called that you know a mix of all kinds of legislative initiatives, and you know he thinks that would be, have to be paid for with a tax increase and. You know they do want to tax the the rich to do that, but back to what he's he's doing. They they are working on ways to to pay for one trillion in improvements, like redirecting some unused coronavirus relief money, uh, leveraging private sector dollars, maybe user fees, and also looking at what they call the tax gap between what should be collected and what actually is collected. So those are some of the things in the mix and. He said he's also been talking to Democratic members of the House Problem Solvers Caucus, which is a a bipartisan group that's working on a similar proposal. So we'll have to see. I mean, if Congress can actually agree on on something of this magnitude, it it would be something. You always wonder how you pay for it. So what we're going to expect to see will be roads and bridges and sewer systems and yeah. for your enjoyment water so we, we, will <laughs> but we he see... did say they would look at broadband too he did he did he say is that. A, that's what i wanted to yeah ask. He, he said it focuses on things like roads and bridges and ports and waterways and airports including broadband he yeah the broadband the, the, it was sad when that started to get bandied about as as not infrastructure because we all know from the pandemic and we're talking Across party lines, everybody agrees, at least in Ohio, we've got to get broadband to everybody. Uh, It's good that Portman is championing that because the fact that that became in play. You can argue on some of the other things that have been used for infrastructure, but broadband, we really need to look at that as a basic need anymore. Good for Rob Portman. I hope he delivers. $1 trillion is a lot of money, especially given all the stimulus. I remember when we used to worry about the national debt, and now we just don't care. (laughs) Our grandchildren will end up having to deal with it. We won't be around. It's this week in the CLE. Why do lawmakers want to stop children in Ohio from being able to buy cough medicine? Laura Johnston, are we going too far with our prohibitions on what children can buy? I mean, I don't know how many kids are going in to buy their own cough syrup, so that could be a problem. But I guess it would be, you know, it, we're talking 15, 16, 17-year-olds. The, these kids are apparently sometimes taking cough medicine in large doses, sometimes mixed with alcohol or energy drinks, to get high. And it's called robo-tripping. And that's the dex. I'm going to mess this up. Dextromethorphan, it can cause nausea, blurred vision, confusion, other symptoms. Also, a lot of these cough syrups have acetaminophen in it. And if you take too much of that, that can really mess up your system. So I feel like, you know, kids will find a way to use, you know, glue, paint, anything um, that they can to get high. But this idea is you'd have to have a prescription if you were under 18 to get the cough syrup. So I guess I can still go in and buy cough syrup for my kids and I don't need a prescription, but I, you know, um, I'm not under 18. <laughs> yeah. It just seems like going a little bit far with the, with the regulations have, 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 do we know if some legislator had their kid get really sick or has there been an example that is spurring this? What, what, drove this? 
I do not know that. Uh, the Ohio Senate actually passed this unanimously, so there wasn't a lot of debate on it. But there's a 2020 survey from the National Institute of Drug Abuse and the University of Michigan. It found that 3.7% of teens had reported using cough medicine, including that um, drug that I can't pronounce, to get high. And that's up from 2.8% in 2019. That's a pretty big jump in just one year. Although maybe if we're talking before how the pandemic year was an anomaly, maybe a lot of kids were sitting at home and had nothing to do. So they were all that cough syrup that we um, stocked up on before the pandemic because we didn't know what was coming found <laughs> in the cupboard. And they were like, all right, let's go to town. Let's get high. Okay. Well, it's interesting that they're pursuing that and they've come to such a good agreement on it. How often are they nearly unanimous in anything they do? You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How are people in Cleveland reacting to the forced resignation of a member of the team that oversees Cleveland police reform? Laura Johnson, I have hope in this one that she will get her job back, that the common sense will prevail, that she's allowed to have an opinion and still be a, a decent participant in the oversight. What's going on with the, the move to return her? Yeah, this is a growing movement. And so today, or sorry, on Wednesday, the Cleveland NAACP, Black Lives Matter Cleveland, and Norman S. Minor Bar Association, they went to the steps of City Hall and pr protested, basically. They want Mayor Frank Jackson and the acting U.S. Attorney for the Northern District, Bridget Brennan, to basically make this go away to say, no, we're not going to accept your resignation. We want you back on the committee because Aisha Hardaway was forced to resign after she spoke against police brutality after the Derek Chauvin verdict, which she didn't say anything really crazy. She just said, you know, there's police brutality that we need to deal with. And she's a respected professor at Case Western Reserve University. And she said she was speaking as a professor, not as a member of the consent decree to committee. But city officials complained about her objectivity. And Hassan Aden, who's the leader of that monitoring team, told Hardaway she either couldn't she couldn't assess the department's performance anymore she could be like a community advocate but so she chose to resign she wrote a very strongly worded letter about that and now the groups are saying hey we want Aiden off this not Hardaway and we want um we, we want an expert who's well-versed on issues of constitutional and civil rights law because this is needed on this consent decree committee you know, I brought this up in our first conversation. I didn't look it up. I, I, it's my belief that police union leaders are also a member of that committee. Is that, do you know if that's the case? I still don't know the answer to that, that be, question. Be, because the police union has said far more egregious stuff. They mm -hmm. recently had a, a press conference to say the consent decree should be thrown out right now and we should, who do they want to fire? I mean, they, 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 I, this I is not, this is not, I mean, what she said pales in comparison to the people that are on the other side. And also, you're allowed to have opinions without compromising your ability to do your job. That's what jurors do every time they're impaneled. They're asked if they can put aside any personal bias and judge things on the facts. And she's been she's been a really strong member of this committee for, what, five years now? 
Yeah, I mean, she had rave reviews. Everybody said, we don't want to lose her. Um, the NAACP president, Danielle Sidnor, said she's the only person who has been a continuous expert relative to the Cleveland police decree. And they felt like it's been unconscionable that the Department of Justice hasn't already stepped in to, to take action. But I guess, actually, um, the acting prosecutor for the, the Northern District did release a statement saying she, they were disappointed with this resignation and the circumstances surrounding it. So I feel like you know, things are happening. This was a big press conference on Wednesday at City Hall that that things might that this is not the story is not over. And and also, I, uh, Case Western Reserve University issued a pretty strong statement in support of her right. as well. Right. Yeah. So absolutely. Yeah. Hopefully this will get reversed because you hate to lose good people in important positions. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right. We're a little short today, but that's because Layla's not here. She's the garrulous one. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back on Friday to wrap up the week of news.